Well, my wife was on women's retreat and uh, just got back. And I got to tell you, I've been away from her more than I like to be away from her recently. I got to travel out to Texas, which was great, but I was away from her and I wasn't able to be with her. And then she went to women's retreat and I was away from her again and I wasn't able to be with her. And then I'm getting ready to go to Shepherd's Conference this week. And again, I'm going to be away from her and, and not with her again. And, and I just got to tell you that I prefer being with my wife a lot more than being away from her. Like, I, I just, I like her. I love her. I, she is, and this is how much I like her because this phrase just is like nails down a chalkboard, but she's my person, okay? <laughs> and I love my kids, but man, I am so glad that I have my wife. And she got home from women's retreat today, and we just got to spend time hanging out with our family and everything, and I, I just, I love her. I, I want to be with her all the time. Um, do we feel that way about Jesus? Do we want Jesus like that? Whoever your person is, is, is Jesus more desirable to you? Even if maybe your person is not somebody that you've met yet, but it's this figment of your imagination right now. And you're thinking, this is going to be Mrs. Wright or Mr. Wright someday. Do you want to be with Jesus more than you want to be with that person? Fernando Ortega uh, took an old song and, and brought it to life again called Give Me Jesus. And in this song, he writes, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Verse 2 says, when I am alone, give me Jesus. Verse 3 says, when I come to die, Give me Jesus. And the chorus is, give me Jesus, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. I don't know how often you open up the book of Ecclesiastes and think about Jesus, but tonight we're going to do just that. So take your Bibles and open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Because while Solomon clearly would not have sang this song, the sentiment is there. And if Solomon knew Jesus, and he does now, but if at that point he did, he probably would have been thinking about this song as he was writing what he was writing in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, pick up with me in verse 1. It says this, there is an evil that is done under the sun. That's kind of the theme of, of most of Ecclesiastes. Under the sun, and the, the evil, the wickedness, the vanity. Vanity is a word in the Hebrew language that it's, it's like the, the steam from a cup of coffee. It's there, you can see it, but if you try to grab it, there's nothing there. It, it, you can't hold on to it. You can't keep it. It leaves as soon as it shows up. And the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, who we believe to be King Solomon, from the outset has been saying, that is life under the sun. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher. And he has been taking us through this journey, this kind of personal reflection, looking back on his, his diary, so to speak, before coming to the conclusion that he gets to at the end of the book, where he's been talking about all of the, the fruitless endeavors in life. And we come to another one here in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, where he says, there's an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. That's a man that we would say is pretty well off. That, that's a man that the world would say is pretty well off. I mean, he's got everything. He lacks nothing. 
Anything he wants, he goes out and he gets. Yet, God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. It's an allusion to his death. And he spends his whole life chasing after these things, amassing all of this wealth, amassing these possessions, amassing these great things, never actually pausing to enjoy them and give thanks for them, only to die and then give them to somebody else to be enjoyed. This is vanity and a grievous evil. Again, evil opens this chapter in chapter six. There is an evil that I have seen. And then Solomon goes on to describe a a man who we've seen already in the book of Ecclesiastes back in chapter two. In chapter two, in fact, if you've got the ESV, the the header above chapter two is the vanity of self-indulgence. Solomon was the wisest of wise. He was the wealthiest, most powerful man that had ever walked the earth at the time. He had so much money that, that silver was as common as the stones on the street in his kingdom. Solomon could get whatever he wanted. And in chapter two, that's exactly what he set out to do. He went out and he amassed wealth and possessions and treasures and built buildings and palaces and commissioned great works of art to be done in his name and then began to say, okay, well, I want to entertain myself. And so he began to get singers and entertainers and concubines. He said the, the, the delight of, man, of men, right? And so look to sex and look to entertainment and look to drink, look to alcohol even, and look to all of it to try to say there's got to be happiness and joy somewhere in all of this. Only to conclude in the end, it's, it's, it's vanity. And so there's echoes of that in chapter six with the description of the man that we just read, the man to whom God gives everything. There's nothing that this man lacks. In fact, in chapter two, at one point, Solomon said, whatever my eyes desired, I did not hold back from them. Whatever I saw and I said, I want that thing, I went out and got it. And at the end, he said, it, it does not satisfy. It's like vanity. It's like the mist off the, the top of the cup of coffee. It's there and then it's gone. And notice where everything comes from. It, it comes from God. And Solomon hits that theme over and over and over in the book as well, because it comes from God, because God is trying to show us and show Solomon's whole time, hey, yeah, there are good gifts to be enjoyed in this life, but they're good gifts to be enjoyed in this life and to be turned around as an act of, of worship to, to the Lord, to glorify him, not to just get more for your own enjoyment, status, acclaim, prestige. But this is the man who is unable to enjoy his wealth and possessions and honor. Whatever the reason, from the litany of examples that Solomon has already provided in the past chapters, this man labors and experiences success, but can't enjoy it. There's something inherently evil about this. That's what Solomon says. But then he calls it at the end of verse two, a grievous evil. Solomon only does that twice in the book. And this is one of them. Grievous. It's a word that means sickening. It makes you sick to your stomach. It's a word that means it's not right. It's unsound that it is this way. It's painful for us to watch this unfold. That's what the word means. And so it's not just that this is evil, that we would say, well, it's the opposite of good, it's bad. No, we would say, man, this, this hurts to watch. This is a painful evil that we're seeing unfold. Why? Why would this be a grievous evil? Well, it's only grievous if there's something much better that's missed. It's only grievous if there's something that this guy just doesn't get, and that's exactly it. If this is just a different form of vanity, amassing all of these things, pursuing all of these things, building up all of your possessions and wealth and everything else, 
this is just a different form of vanity, well then, yeah, it, it may be evil and frustrating or discouraging, but it wouldn't be grievous the way that he describes it as, as grievous here. The picture Solomon is painting is a grievous evil. And he's beginning to capture for us the whole essence or picture of a life lived just for idolatry, just for our idols, for the things that we think are going to make us happy, the things that we think are going to bring us joy and satisfaction. And his conclusion is, is that it's, it's sickening. It's difficult to watch because there is something so much better. Solomon knew it was because this was true, because he, he knew the sovereign God of the universe who gives purpose and meaning to our lives. Solomon had already come to that conclusion as re- he's reflecting on this. And so he's saying it's, it's a grievous evil to miss the purpose God has for us to just store up all of these treasures instead. Or to put all of our hope and confidence in the treasures and not in the God behind the treasures. Solomon knew that, but, but for you and I tonight, I want us to consider the, the, the point in light of the fact that we know Jesus. And Jesus is better than all of these things. And look, if if we chase after everything in this world and you get it all, but you miss Jesus, you've got nothing. Our first point tonight is this. Avoid the tragedy of life without Jesus. Avoid the tragedy of life without Jesus. Solomon wouldn't say it this way. And I'll grant you that. But we certainly can, knowing what Solomon only knew through the promises yet unrealized. We know that the ultimate prize in life is Jesus. At least I hope you do. It's been a lot of what the last five years has been aimed at for me. That the ultimate goal is for us to love Jesus more. One of my pastors once said, your goal in life is to be amazed, right? And we get that, right? We've got the latest iPhone. You've got the latest Android, whatever it is you, you like to use there. You've got the latest gizmos and gadgets. You like to watch amazing people do crazy things on YouTube. You like to, are, are, we have an inherent desire to be amazed as humanity. And then he said this, your goal in life is to be amazed. And Jesus is amazing. Jesus is amazing. The, 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 the pinnacle of amazement is found in Jesus. Think of all the brilliant and successful minds in the world who've died without knowing Jesus. And while we may be here still enjoying some of those things that they invented, some of those things that they created, some of those things that they thought up, it does them no good now. And the fact that you may know their name doesn't matter one bit. Here's the deal, y'all. Elon Musk, I don't believe he knows Jesus. He's doing some pretty amazing things in the world right now, some crazy things and also some amazing things. Listen, if he dies tomorrow not knowing Jesus, none of it matters. None of it matters. Look, if if you grow up and you cure every form of cancer so that it becomes like the common cold and you die without Jesus, you've done nothing for the world. If you grow up and you are a Fortune 500 CEO and you drive the nicest cars, and you are the richest person in the world, and you die without Jesus, you have nothing, nor have you accomplished anything. How many of you know who the richest person in the world was in 1980? Exactly. It's not that long ago, y'all. 
It might feel like that to you. It doesn't feel like that to me so much. But, to, but think about that. Four generations have come and gone. Five decades have passed. Almost five. Four. Coming up on four. Math. I'm a, I'm a pastor, not a mathematician. But just in four, 40 years, and you have no clue who it was. Go back to the 70s, 60s, 50s. In other words, what's my point? My point is this. After you die, what good is your reputation if it's not rooted and grounded in Christ? What good is your possessions if they're not used for Jesus and his kingdom? And that's Solomon's point here. Think of all the nice people and the philanthropic millionaires that are out there who have died without Jesus. What have they had? And what impact have they made? Look, if, if you make your billions and you give it all away to clothe and feed the homeless and you have not a relationship with Jesus, you have done nothing. Nothing. Think of the Buddhist monk who dies chasing nirvana without Jesus. He's done nothing. Think of the, the peaceful Hindu who dies chasing oneness with creation but dies without Jesus. What does he have? He has nothing. Think of the atheist at your work or in your family who's cared well for their family and yet dies without Jesus. What have they done? They've done nothing. And that's Solomon's point here. Look, you can have it all, but if you have not Jesus, you have nothing. In this context, it was the Fortune 500 CEO who got everything. And yet he came to realize what Jesus would say later on. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit what? His soul. If you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. When we read through the, the Old Testament and we see all the nations that are chasing after their false gods, does it cause a, a, a grieving in your soul? Not, not a critical, judgmental spirit as, as though you're sitting there going, oh man, what jerks, I can't... Yeah, the Baal worshipers, they're getting what they deserve. Do you understand that that means they're dying in, in suffering in hell for all eternity? Like when you see Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and, and we like to, to read that and talk about how, oh, Elijah was like, oh, maybe your God's you know, taking a leak. Um, th those prophets all died and are now currently, even today, without one millisecond of, of relief, suffering the eternal wrath of God in hell. Is that a grievous evil to us? Do you see the tragedy of a life lived without Jesus? In the ESV, it says, this lies heavy on mankind. Does it weigh on your soul and on your heart that people are dying around you without Jesus? Do you feel despair over the plight of the world? See, anything but Jesus will not satisfy Anything but Jesus will not do the job. And so you look around at one of the fastest growing religious identities in, in the nation right now is the identity, ironically enough, of the nuns. Not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S. People that say, we, we just have no affiliation, we don't care about any of it. Look, at if they die without Jesus, hell awaits. Muhammad, the, those that follow Muhammad, Muhammad can't do anything for you. Buddha can't do anything for you. Hinduism can't do anything for you. Mormonism can't do anything for you. And the perversions that are present in Catholicism can't do anything for you. Only Jesus can.
to live for anything else by any other standard in pursuit of anything else is nothing short of tragedy. And so I want to ask you, if if Solomon looked at your life, would he say this is a grievous evil? If he looked at the lives of your neighbors, your friends, would he say, oh man, this is a grievous evil? If he looked at the the lives of your family, would he say, what a grievous evil? If he looked at the lives of of those you live nearby, your neighbors, would he say, what a grievous evil? If he looked at the lives of your coworkers, would he say, what a grievous evil? And, And if so, my question to you tonight is, do you feel that too? I mean, that is a a grievous, it's a heartbreaking, it's a sickening, it's a tragic thing to watch people that I profess to care about storing up wrath for themselves on the day of judgment. Our greatest need in this life is not getting everything we want. It's getting Jesus. Solomon keeps going to verse three. He says, look, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness and in darkness, its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything yet. It finds rest rather than he, even though he should live a thousand years twice over yet enjoy no good. Don't all go to the one place. If a man has a hundred children, it's Pastor Lucas is who he's talking about here. <laughs> he's got more than me, so I'm able to say that now. But remember, y'all, this is Solomon, the sage, reflecting on his life. And he, he's talked about the Fortune 500 CEO. Look, we can indict that all day long. We can sit here and go, okay, I can track with you, Pastor PJ, that, that look, living for material wealth and material gain and possessions and all that stuff... Yes, and missing Jesus, that's tragic. I get that. That's bad. We shouldn't do that. Now he, he gets in our kitchen a little bit. Now he, he turns up the heat on us a little bit because now he's going to begin to go for respectable idols that are all over the church because now he comes after family. He says, look, if a guy has 100 kids, wow. And you know what? If he, his years are without end, he lives well into his, his old age. So all of the family vacations that he wanted, he gets to have. Watching his kids grow up, he gets to experience that. Having the family that he wants, he gets, hey, he's got 100 kids. Surely a few of them are going to turn out okay, right? Like, he's got so many shots to get this right. And, and he's going to have his family, and it's going to be awesome. But, but wait a minute, actually, it's, maybe it's, it's not because what? Because his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. Y'all, if, if you're thinking, man, when I grow up and I have a family, then I'm going to be happy and satisfied. If that's where your hope is, you won't be. If, if your thought is, man, I can't wait to get married and have my kids and Norman Rockwell painting, and we're going to sit down for dinner together every single night around the dinner table because we're going to live the only life that, that actually allows that to actually functionally happen, um, and it's going to be great, and my kids are going to grow up, and nobody's going to cause any problems, and they're all going to be pretty, and they're going to marry pretty people, and they're going to give me pretty, pretty grandbabies. And look, if, if that's your dream and you get it all, it's still not going to make you happy. It's still not going to make you happy. Why? Because that's not what God's design was for us to be satisfied. It was never in those things. 
I, I, I open this by telling you how much I love my wife, and I do love my wife, but I'm never going to put the burden on her to be my sole source of satisfaction and hope and comfort and, and joy. God didn't give her to me for that reason, nor did he give me to her for that reason. So Solomon's beginning to press in a little bit more on this concept that we've got to live for something else. Okay, right, we can all sit here and comfortably say, I get it, we need to live for something other than wealth and possession and status and prestige. We need to live for Jesus and love Jesus. I Avoid the tragedy of life without Jesus. Point number one, get it, check the box, let's move on. What's next? How about this? You need to live for more than your dreams of your family that you want in the future. You need to live with the understanding that that's not going to satisfy you and make you happy. You need to live in the the tension of the reality that you may never get married and you may never have kids. Is Jesus still enough? He says, look, I've I've seen the guy with it it all, with the family that everybody wants to have. And he, he lives for a long, long, long time. And he's using hyperbole here. This is not a guy with literally 100 kids, although Solomon had 700 concubines, so it's possible, I guess. But his argument here is is when there's no satisfaction now, when there's no satisfaction with the respectable idols, what then? His indictment is pretty strong, isn't it? Better is a stillborn child than that man. Better is a child that never takes a breath outside the womb than the man who lives hundreds of years, with hundreds of kids. Because he's never known the vanity of the world. And he's never made the mistake of putting his full confidence and hope and trust in something that was never meant to satisfy, to be his sole source of satisfaction. Today our world does a lot of that. People will chase after anything and everything in order to avoid having to deal with the reality that they need Jesus as their savior. Or they will face Jesus as the judge. And so this guy gets his family and he thinks the family is going to be great and then, then, then I don't need to worry about anything else. And this guy gets 100 kids and he's like, I've got that. I don't need to worry about anything else. And I'm living a long life. And some of y'all are sitting here right now and you're not thinking about what really matters in life because you're sitting here tonight thinking, I'm young and I've got plenty of time in front of me. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Let's say you do. Let's say you live to be 100. And breathe your last breath. You know who's waiting on the other side of that last breath? Jesus. Let's say you don't. Let's say tonight you take your last breath at some point between now and the time that you go to sleep tonight. You know who's waiting on the other side of that breath? Jesus. And if he wasn't your source of satisfaction here and now, he's your source of condemnation and judgment then. So Solomon says to the man that's pursuing respectable idols to distract himself from the reality that, look, death is coming. He says, look, if if this is all you're living for, you're in for a world of hurt because even though you should live a thousand years twice over yet enjoy no good, look, eventually all go to one place and that one place is where? The grave. And after that comes the appointment with Jesus. Again, did Solomon know that part? No. No but we do. So our second point tonight is this. Be ready for your appointment with Jesus. Be ready for your appointment with Jesus. Look, have your hundreds of kids and then bring them to North Texas. We'll have the kids men ready for you. Look, have your hundreds of kids. Do it, right? Just go over that with your wife in premarital counseling, guys, if that's your goal. 
Full tables, many grandchildren, all the joys that come with family. But listen, if you don't have Jesus, it's all vanity. Have your long life. Accomplish everything that you want to accomplish while gaining much wealth. But without Jesus, it's going to be vanity. The respectable idols that our culture has allowed to creep into the church, right? What are some of those respectable idols? Family is number one, I would say, in the church. Health is a close, close second in the church. That somehow the, the purpose in life is for you to be healthy. And if you're healthy, then you'll be satisfied. Then you'll be content. Then you'll be happy. Third is intellect, I would say, is another respectable idol in the church. That the smartest guy in the room is the best guy in the room. Fourth, cultural enlightenment has crept into the church as a respectable idol. That the culture would applaud you or the culture would applaud that church. With that, another respectable idol that has crept into the church is tolerance. To say we love everybody, we welcome everyone just as they are. Because here's the thing, y'all. The world may wag their fingers still shamefully at the workaholic or the alcoholic, but they will stand and applaud the family man, the gym rat, the bookworm, and certainly the tolerant philanthropist. But none of that matters without Christ. You'll gain the applause of the world and receive the, the condemnation of Jesus. If these are pursued for what they are in and of themselves, right? Is family bad? No, family's not bad. Is being healthy bad? No, I, I wish I was a little bit more healthy right now myself. Is, is intellect bad? No, not necessarily. But if these things are pursued in and of themselves and, and not stewarded for Christ as a gift from him, then what is going to result in is, is misery and tragedy because you will have missed the point again. We must prepare for our appointment with Jesus, which impacts how we live our lives now and what we think matters now. If God gives you a family, great. He gives you a family to be stewarded and shepherded for Jesus. If God gives you health, praise God. Use it to, to serve Christ and to, to, to exalt Jesus. If God takes it away from you, figure out how you can still be useful to the Lord in whatever state you may be. If God gives you intellect, then use it to exalt Christ and worship Jesus. If you're not the sharpest tool in the shed, it's all right. God can still use you to exalt Christ and glorify Jesus through the way that you live your life. There's an appointment coming, and we need to be ready for it, and it impacts the way that we live our lives and the things that we bank on. For the unbeliever, Revelation 20 is inescapable. You know what Revelation 20 is? It's the great white throne. It's when the books are opened, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, they were cast into the lake of fire. That moment is inescapable for the unbeliever. But Christian, lest you think that we're off the hook on that, 2 Corinthians 5.10 is inescapable for us. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You don't want to stand before Jesus on that day and have to explain why you chased after these respectable idols for your whole life and didn't spend more time exalting Jesus and worshiping Christ through the, the sacrificial service of your pouring out yourself. You don't want to have to answer for that before the Bema Seat. So caught up in, in having the perfect family, so caught up in having the perfect health, so caught up in having the perfect intellect, so caught up in whatever the respectable idol may be and not caught up in exhausting yourself for Jesus. So that each one may receive, this is the Bema Seat, what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. When Jesus looks at what you pursued with your life and the things that you did with your life, what's it going to be? 
What's he going to find? That appointment is as inescapable as anything else. We've looked at the, the materialist, and then we've looked at the, the respectable idols, and, and then he concludes his argument starting in verse 7. He says, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Ecclesiastes 5.10, just one chapter back, said this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. For nor he who loves wealth with his income, this also is vanity. Verse 8 of chapter 6, For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Solomon's just indicting everybody at this point in time. When this life is lived in, in constant pursuit of the unattainable, there's no advantage to being wise over foolish. There's no advantage to having money over having no money. Better, his conclusion is, is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. That is such a powerful verse. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. I, I wish as a young man I had heard that more. Better is what you have, basically is what he's saying, than what you want. Learn to be content with the things that you have, the sight of the eyes, the things that are there in front of you, rather than the wandering of the appetite that, that chases after things you might crave and think will make you happy instead. It's put a different way in a, a, a colloquial proverb that you've probably heard, better is a bird in the hand than two in the bush, right? Better is the one that you have than the potential of, of maybe something you think is better over there. Our appetites, y'all, will always be begging for more. Our appetites will always crave more. That's what makes it an appetite. It's not an appetite if it doesn't want more than what you already have. But true wisdom is found in realizing that more is not necessarily always better when it comes to life. And nowhere is this more true than our relationship with Jesus. Our final point tonight is this. Fight to believe Jesus is enough. Fight to believe Jesus is enough. As we just talked about, look, even good things can distract us from trusting that Jesus is enough. I'm getting ready to, to go and plant this church. And I'm stoked. I'm excited about that. But y'all, if I'm looking for this church plant to satisfy me, if I'm looking to, to get this church up and running and, 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 and going and looking at that, that that's going to somehow validate my purpose for existence, then I, it, it won't. And if you guys are looking at marriage or you're looking at graduation or you're looking at your career as that thing that's going to satisfy you and give your life purpose, it won't. It, it, what you have right now, if you have Christ, that's what's going to give you the purpose. The sight of the eyes that we need to be focusing on tonight is Jesus, not the wandering of the appetite that says, okay, yeah, Jesus is great, but I also want these things over here. Think about some of the things that you've looked forward to in the past. Let me just drive this home for you. What are some of the things that you've said, oh man, I can't wait until getting your driver's license. Look, some of y'all in the room are still there. Can we just have a little sidebar come to Jesus moment? Like, let's, let's get our driver's license, folks, okay? Okay. Like, let's, let's do this. 
I, under get, I understand sometimes there are mitigating circumstances, but aside from that, that aside, like let's, let's, let's grow up. Let's get our driver's license. The real ID, you need it now in the airports. There's signs up all over the place. And then you can drive a car and you will know a freedom that you've never known before. But do you guys remember looking forward to getting your driver's license? Some of you are like, I'm still there tonight and you're talking to me, Pastor PJ. So that, yes, I do. I feel that right now. The, the anticipation, I remember my, my best friend growing up in uh, high school, his name was Bryce, and, uh, which is ironic because my son Luke's best friend's name is Bryce. Um, totally different, totally different guy though. Um, not the same guy. But my, my best friend Bryce in high school, he was, that, he was always ahead of me by age because that's how that works. He was born first. And so um, I never caught up. But he turned 16 first, and his parents were like, what kind of car do you want? And the guy was like, I want a yellow Nissan Xterra. And so that's what they got him. And he was like, I'm going to put flames on it. We're like, don't do that. Let's not, don't put flames on your yellow car. And he didn't, praise God. But I remember looking at him driving around going, oh, man, it's so cool. I want to be able to drive around in a car that's not a, a yellow Nissan Xterra, but I want to be able to drive around. But like, there was this old song from the 90s, y'all, called Scrubs. I don't want no scrubs. Scrubs is a guy who can't get no love from me, hanging out the passenger side of his best friend's ride, trying to holler at me. I was the scrub in his ride, in his passenger seat, as we were driving around, right, in the yellow Nissan Xterra. But the whole time I was sitting there going, I can't wait until I drive. Things are going to get so much better when I drive. So I, I finally got my license, and I, I got this 91 Mercedes, but don't think, like, bougie. Like, this thing, like, the muffler fell off of my car at one point. And I don't know anything about cars, so I just looked around. I was like, can I drive without this thing? And somebody said yes, so I popped it in the trunk, and I threw it in the trunk, and I, I just kept going. But I was stoked. I had freedom. I had my license. Well, y'all, it's been 22 years now since I've had my license, and it's just not as exciting to me anymore. It doesn't give me the same satisfaction to have my license anymore. But if you don't have it, go get your license, okay? <laughs> just don't look for it to satisfy you, because eventually it won't. But there's that excitement, right, about getting your driver's license. So there's that, but then it wears off, which I'm imagining for most of you in the room, it has. How about graduating from high school? How many of y'all were excited to graduate from high school? That's like everybody. That's why senioritis exists, and it's a thing. Because nobody's like, I want to just always be in high school. I want to stay here. It's going to be great. I know Troy Bolton, and he's the star, and he's going to ask me to the prom next year. I'm, I'm sure of it. No, by the time you're a senior, you're like, can I get out of here, please? And you're like, and, and then I want to go and, and, and do whatever. And now you're doing that. By the way, if some of you guys haven't graduated from high school yet or gotten your license, do both those things. And why are you here? Get out of here. This is a college group. But you're looking forward to graduating from high school. And then you do. And then how satisfying is that to you? How many of you guys go home and you just stare at your high school diploma in the, at night? You're like, this is so awesome. I can't believe I did that. Hey, mom, dad, did you see this? Yes, son, we saw like. It, does, it just doesn't satisfy you anymore, right? You're on to the next thing. How about getting your first job? You guys look forward to that. You're like, man, I'm going to get a paycheck. It's going to be awesome. And then you get it and you're like, whoa, this is way less than I thought it was going to be. And you learn about taxes all of a sudden. And then you like save up for the first thing that you want to buy. And then you buy it and you're like, that's sweet. And then you realize, man, I got to go back to work tomorrow. And I just don't want to do that anymore. Your first job doesn't satisfy you anymore either, okay? So you've experienced what I'm talking about here. You've experienced what Solomon's talking about here. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. Why? Because if you get what you want, like we talked about in the first point, it's still not going to satisfy you. And so the corrective to that is this point. Fight for contentment 
believe that Jesus is enough. And it's a fight because the world's going to try to convince you every single day that he's not. The world's going to appeal to the wandering of the appetite. The world's going to try you to, buy, to get you to, to buy into this idea that, man, if you only have this, yeah, keep your Jesus. You can have your Jesus too. Don't worry about that. But then also you need this. Let me come at it from a different angle. If someone were to ask you what your greatest need is presently and then proceed to meet that need, how grateful would you be for that? Yeah. Right? Like if, if you think about college loans and, and if, if President Biden is not going to just forgive them all, um, but if you think about student loans, which by the way, he shouldn't forgive those. Can we just say that? And, and you may have a, a bunch of student loans and you may be sitting out there going, how dare you? Well, how dare you? Okay? So there. <laughs> Back at you. Um, but if you think, think about all of your student loans, and, and then you're like, man, I, that's a lot, and i got to pay all that off. Imagine if someone came up and said, I'll, I'll, I'll clear that balance for you. How grateful would you be? Now, now, imagine this. It'd be one thing if that was Elon Musk, because for him, that's, that's like a sneeze. And he's like, oh, yep, look, I just sneezed out your student loans, and there you go. You can have them. You're good. You're, you're, you're free and clear. But then imagine if it was like, your, your mom or dad or, or grandma or grandpa who were sacrificing by dipping into their own savings or taking on extra shifts at work to pay off your student loans. And they, they freed you from that debt at a great cost to themselves. How much more grateful would you be to them? And then imagine, though, in that scenario, if then you looked at them and you were like, man, mom, dad, that's, that was great. Thanks for doing that. I, I'd like to go buy a car. Can, can you pick up a, a fourth shift at work so you can pay for my car, too? Yo, what did our salvation cost the Father? Jesus. And when our appetites wander, it's like we're going back to the Father going, yeah, Jesus is great, God, but can I have this too over here? Am I saying you can never ask God for anything? No, that would be heretical. But I am saying I think we need to be content with what we have far more than we are. And, and starting with Jesus. I mean, think about Christ, right? Right? Colossians 2, 9 and 10, in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you've been filled in him who's the head of all rule and authority. You have been filled in Christ. Hebrews 1, 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 1 Corinthians 1, 30, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Colossians 2, 3. In whom, speaking of Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction of God's wrath against our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 2 Timothy 3.15, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.3, sorry for the typo up there. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We covered that verse on the last one, so there you go. Just extras, doubly. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You have that Jesus. He's way more than a Christian mascot. He's way more than a get-out-of-jail-free card. He is our life, and we need to fight to believe that he is enough. 
How satisfied are you with the provision of Jesus? And it's a fight because we live in a world that has laid out the red carpet for our flesh. And it's given our flesh a megaphone. And here's the deal. You got to lean into the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit has got to carry a louder megaphone in your life than your flesh does. So you got to be in the Word. You got to be in prayer. You got to be with God's people. Paul put it this way, I discipline my body, 1 Corinthians 9, 27. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching, Christ, preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. To fix our eyes on Jesus, trusting that he is enough. Solomon didn't know Jesus. He does now. He didn't here. And maybe you're uncomfortable with the way that I handled this passage because you're like, well, authorial intent and yada, yada, yada. I'm 100% confident that if Solomon was here today, he would read this passage with us and say, yes, 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 this Jesus is better than all of these things. The tragedy of this guy's life lived that dies is he didn't have Christ. And we need to, to, to be ready for that moment because all of us are going to die and then comes the, the appointment with Jesus. And in the meantime, man, we got to fight for contentment in Christ, believing that Jesus is enough. Again, the, the lyrics from Fernando Ortega, give me Jesus. You can have, here's what Ortega says, can you say this tonight? You can have all the world, but give me Jesus. I pray you can, let's pray together. God, we thank you for this reality, for, for Christ. We thank you that he is enough. God, I'm so thankful that our gospel does not say salvation is by grace alone after all we have done. I'm thankful that our gospel says that it's not about what we have done, but everything that Christ has done. And that's the reason that he is enough. The reason that we can praise him. The reason that we can worship him. The reason that we can exalt him, and pour ourselves out for him. And so God, give us a greater affection for Christ. Make us people who love Jesus most in this world. That we live lives that reflect that as well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.